From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I love Japan with every ounce of my being, and I've dedicated my whole life. I opened a ramen business, not because I love ramen, but because I love Japan. This ability to be sort of on the outside, just observing and feeling this, this just incredible warmth about what I'm observing... I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And you just heard from one of today's guests, Ivan Orkin, who joined me along with his co-author, Chris Ying, to discuss their latest cookbook, The Gaijin Cookbook, Japanese Recipes from a Chef, Father, Eater, and Lifelong Outsider. Now, if you're a fan of ramen, odds are you know Ivan. He's the creator of Ivan Ramen and Ivan Ramen Slurp Shop, his New York City restaurants that have been showered with praise. He's been called the American Authority on Ramen, and we'll talk about how his life took him from Long Island to Tokyo and how his lifelong obsession with all things Japanese began. A graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, he was featured in season three of Netflix's Chef's Table. And Ivan's co-author, Chris Ying, who also worked with Ivan on his first cookbook, Ivan Ramen, is the co-founder of the genre-breaking and award-winning and sadly now defunct food magazine Lucky Peach, and he's worked on numerous other cookbooks and served as creative and editorial director of MAD, the nonprofit founded by chef Rene Redzepi. Today, Ivan and Chris joined us in our studio to discuss their latest cookbook, The Gaijin Cookbook. Ivan describes this book as a reflection of his lifetime spent as an outsider, looking admirably at Japan, soaking up everything I can. Gaijin, the title word, translates to foreigner or outsider or non-Japanese. But after living in Japan for close to three decades, plus speaking fluent Japanese, raising three half-Japanese kids, and with two successful Tokyo restaurants in his background, Ivan is sharing his knowledge here because, as he writes, without a doubt, his life is better for what I've learned from Japan. In today's show, we'll talk with Ivan and Chris about this book, about the concept of being a gaijin or an outsider, about ramen, about Japan, and of course, about cookbooks. Plus, we put them both to a Can You Ramen It test. Also in today's show, food writer Charlotte Druckmann joins us to talk about her recent exploration of how cookbook authors have showcased cooking as an outlet for coping with depression and other mental health challenges. Plus, we feature two recipes from the Gaijin cookbook, Chicken Dan Dan Noodles and Okonomiyaki, or Savory Pancakes. And Celia Sack from Omnivore Books joins us. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Ivan Orkin and Chris Ying joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Chris. Hi, Ivan. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank yeah. you for having us. So we're here to talk about your latest cookbook um, that you wrote together, the Gaijin Cookbook. Mm-hmm. Um, Ivan, let's start with you, and then Chris will sort of bring you into the the fold here in a minute. I'll just um, curl up over here in the corner. <laughs> you get to sip on your, your coffee for a minute. So Ivan, you grew up in New York, right? Yep, uh, Long Island. Okay. And you have said before that you grew up in a family of high achievers. I did. Yes. I did, yeah. And you sort of felt like you were maybe misplaced at times in that family. Is that Always. fair? Always. Okay. Um, you struggled with school, with focusing a little bit, and then I'm, I'm condensing a lot here, but your first job is actually in a Japanese restaurant. Is that yep. right? As a, as a dishwasher, am as I getting that right? As a dishwasher in, uh, in, uh, the late seventies in Long Island when, okay. when, uh, Japanese restaurants were not ubiquitous, but it was just a part-time job and, uh, it was uh it was the first time I'd ever had a job that actually had a paycheck and uh sure I really liked it I I had I had always been very very interested in eating and food but this was the first time 
where I saw it being produced and uh, being part of this whole ecosystem of things, you know, service and hospitality and, and cooking and all the sounds and the smells. And I, and I was, you know, I was really, really into it. And uh, my initial memories of all this is how kind the cooks were and how I was constantly hungry and how they constantly were very happy to feed me. Yeah. And I really, and, and, you know, I, I grew up in a family where food was not the most important thing. And my mother and father didn't cook that much. So okay. there wasn't even a certain type of cuisine in my house. There was just, you know, food on the table, but it wasn't, you know, some, some kids you grew up with, you know, they had an Italian grandmother or they're, sure. they're the Russian or whatever. And they had bountiful tables and always ate, ate, ate. And that wasn't my life. So I think working in that Japanese restaurant was the first time I felt a part of something. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was just a part-time job. I didn't work there for more than, I don't know what it was, nine months or okay. a year. And, but it stayed with me. So when I went to college, I studied Japanese. Uh huh. And, of, and you were interested in food, not in Japan when you got that job. Is that right? I was interested in the $5 an hour off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. Yeah. But, but then you, you got hooked and now you're, you're fast forwarding to college and decided to study Japanese. Yep. Decided to study. And I, then I ultimately majored in Japanese and uh -huh. language, literature, history, and all, all the things that go with studying about another country. Um, and when I graduated, I thought the logical thing would be to move to Japan and sure. sort of, uh, see what what it was all about and so you moved to tokyo yep. is that right moved to tokyo. and that's your first time to japan yep you hadn't visited before you know nope. 19, 1987 okay and you were hooked yes yes in a big way i really i really really loved it and i i loved japan and you've said that when you arrived it felt like coming home even though it you've did. never been it was a weird feeling uh it was so clean and orderly and friendly and bright and it was just and i think you know i'm i'm a very uh ADHD sort of just, I'm a type of person who, you know, having lots of things buzzing around me is stimulating and enjoyable. And sure. I, I think that being an expat fits my personality because I, I think, you know, no matter how good my language skills get, no matter how much I know about Japan, I'm, it's just constantly being faced with things I don't know. I'm never totally balanced when I'm in Japan, but in, in a really good way, not in yeah. a bad way. It's like right. I'm always sort of, you know, for a guy like me, you know, to feel like you got it all figured out is uncomfortable. I mean, I speak Japanese real well. I, am, uh -huh. I know so much about Japan. And yet, I mean, every single trip when I'm there or even when I live there, I was like, huh? Well, I have no idea what this person's saying. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. We're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to this concept of being an expat or being a gaijin in a minute. But Chris, let's bring you in now. So Chris, you grew up in California, right? In the Bay? Was it in the Bay Area? I grew up in Southern California. Southern California. In Orange okay. County, yeah. Okay. Where I was also an outsider. And also coming from a family of high achievers, right? Yeah. Uh, I had like a pretty stereotypical tiger parent, Asian American upbringing. Okay. Um, just get good grades or be grounded. Sure. And I, I think your parents both, or your dad was an engineer and mom was a pharmacist. Am I my that my right? dad, wow, this is the most well-researched <laughs> podcast in America. It's incredible. Oh, in America. Wow. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, my, my dad was an engineer. My mom uh -huh. uh, was a pharmacist. They ran on the side because, you know, you need a side job, uh, sure. side hustle. Right. They had a couple of ice cream shops and a Mexican restaurant yeah. that I, I grew up like sort of in the back room hanging out in. And um, these were Baskin Robbins, right? They're two Baskin. Oh my God, this is so <laughs> amazing. Uh, two Baskin Robbins and a, and a Mexican restaurant called uh -huh. El, El Loco. 
So you were pretty closely involved with food from a young age, just by nature of being yeah. part of this family side hustle? I think so. I mean, I yeah. had a pretty different upbringing from Ivan in that sense. You know, food was always at the center of like everything we did. You know, I think a lot of Asian families will, will attest to that. It's kind of like you, whenever you see your family, it's because you're having a big banquet. Like that was every single Sunday. I never, uh-huh. Saturday and Sunday, I never understood why we were driving two hours to go to Monterey Park to have Chinese food. Right. Um, but, uh, that was, yeah, food was, was very central, but not in like a very, not in a conscious way, not in a way where I was like, we are a family that believes in food and sure. the importance of food. It was just like, I was a chubby little guy and, I like to eat things and my parents yeah. used to, we would go, when we come back from Asia, my parents would always be like, okay, like you can go tell all your friends that you had eel and pigeon and frog's legs and uh, all the crazy things you ate. And I'd be like, why don't I tell them that? Like I'm hiding all of that. I don't want them right. to know that I ate all that weird shit. Like what are you talking about, mom? For either of you, when was the moment you realized that food was actually a career path for you? I mean, you're, you're working Ivan at this $5 an hour dishwashing job. Was that clicking for you at that moment? And then, Chris, when did it sort of strike you that this could be a career? Absolutely not. No. Um, I graduated high school in 1981 when uh, nice Jewish boys from Long Island didn't become cooks. And uh-huh. I don't mean that in like a, a, a any, in a bad way. I just think it wasn't. I think part of it was just it wasn't something I really thought about. And what I did know about working in restaurants, I realized was very, very hard. And sure. I think I was a little scared of that. I just think over the years, you know, I always had part-time jobs through college and through high school. I always worked in some kind of a food business. And uh, and then I went to Japan and, and I realized that I'm not a white-collar guy, so there were no jobs for me that were interesting. You tried and, for and, a bit, right? You were tra- you were selling some sort of electronic device. Computer chips Well, I sold computer chips. Computer yeah, chips. I did that with my first wife and... Uh, I still don't know what they do or how they work. And, uh, it was a horrible job. And I, were you good? How many did you sell? None. <laughs> Literally zero. Zero. I don't think I ever saw. I don't, I don't, I don't even know what I was doing. Right. <laughs> no, I, I just it was amazing that my, that she married me. I, mean, I was such a total tool. I had no idea what I was doing. And, uh, but you know, and then I had an epiphany and I was just like, you know what? All I do is think about eating and food and it's yeah. the only thing that makes me really happy. And I decided, you know, I said to my parents, you know, I was thinking about cooking school and they said, you know, we were also thinking you should go to cooking school. Okay. And, and it just sort of struck me. And it's funny because, you know, since the day I stepped into culinary school, I've just never thought of doing anything else but cooking. And it's been, you know, close to 30 years. And I just, you know, it's all I want to do. It's all I think about yeah. and being involved in this, in, in this industry. And yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's very, uh, stimulating and interesting. And I, I really love it. Chris, was there a moment when you realized food was a career path for you? Uh, there were several moments where I was so sure that it was not a career path. Not. Okay. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I cooked in, I cooked in restaurants through college. I cooked in restaurants in Berkeley. Uh-huh. Um, did but you to, like, did you go to UC Berkeley? I went to UC Berkeley okay. and cooked. I mean, in he's more of a cook than me, really. I mean, I didn't, I didn't cook until I until I graduated culinary school. I never right. really cooked. I mean, I, I worked in a tofu shop and I like made tofu salads and yeah. tabbouleh <laughs> salads in college and and muffins. I made muffins in college, but I never like. I wasn't a line cook. I uh-huh. didn't work in you know. I mean, I worked I worked at the Wendy's. 
right. in, in high school. <laughs> sure. So I flipped burgers. But I mean, I sure. was actually never really, I had very little true cooking experience until I, after cooking, cooking school. Yeah. Yeah. I'd never, I, I walked into a restaurant, like a nice little fine dining restaurant that, you know, been opened by some Chez Panisse alums and right. it was very California cuisine. Uh, it was, it was the nicest restaurant I had ever been t- inside of, I think. I just, I, I'm, I mean, you're right. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I am really bad at seeing the possibilities and whatever's happening around me. I just, like, I really dive into whatever it is. So, okay. I cooked there because I thought it would, like, impress women and it, uh, didn't. And I thought that, you know, I, I, I was really, I romanticized, like, you know, I mean, cooking in the line, like Ivan can tell you, is, is, is amazing. It's so cool to be in a professional kitchen and just feel like you're, you know, part of this thing and this, this team. And like, it gets compared to everything between from sports to the military to, you know, whatever, but it really has this like camaraderie that's, that's special. And I loved that. And it was so different than, you know, what I wasn't feeling in classes. Right. You know, like I felt completely disconnected and I, I was rejecting everything from being, uh, you know, working so hard academically in high school. So, I, but I never, I was never, I never thought of myself as a cook. I never thought I would, I would cook in college and then I would stop. Like I never uh-huh. imagined being a chef because, you know, I'd been raised to think that was like not a real path for me. And then when I started working in publishing, I started working in the mission just a few blocks from where we are right now. I was okay. working at this place called McSweeney's and, uh-huh. you know, I, I, it never occurred to me to write about food or do anything about food because I was like, why would you do that? That seems so frivolous. So not only was there not really a moment where I thought it was a career path for me, there were multiple moments where I was dead sure that it was not a career path for me. Yeah. And then it's just like those things that happen. I think it'll like Ivan will attest to the same stuff. Like the place that you find yourself there was so often, like, I don't think there's like a moment where you decided like, I'm going to do this. It's just, maybe I'll do that. Right. Oh, maybe, maybe, Oh, Dave Chang is, is calling and he wants to do this thing. Like, yeah, whatever, let's do this thing. And then it just slowly consumes your life. And the next thing you know, you are Ivan Orkin and people call you Ivan Ramen instead. (laughs) Or, you know, like you're, you're me. And, and suddenly like this thing you rejected for so long, like all you do is, is write about food and make food shows and and everything. And, and I don't regret it at all, but there wasn't, there wasn't an epiphany where I was like, I'm going to become a food weirdo. Right. It all just fell into place. Yeah. And this thing, when you, when you say this thing, Dave Chang called with this thing, that's Lucky Peach Magazine. That became Lucky Peach Magazine. Is that how the two of you met? Because the first sort issue, right, in, you're in the first issue. Yeah. Okay. So but you, you didn't a, know each other before. No, that. you got a first issue right there. And that's, yeah. those are Ivan's beautiful, muscular, well-defined arms yeah they're hard to get copies of these days yeah they're hard to get a copy you know this is not my copy i actually i have a sad story about my lucky peach collection it's it's no longer it accidentally was thrown out with some other magazines that were supposed to be thrown out oh my god um i had all of them my mother-in-law gifted me the subscription when lucky peach started Thankfully, I have access to some other resources and we can have a copy here oh man they got tossed my personal collection is no more but that's how you first met this first or yeah, first sort of. really sort of started to work together and yeah, know each I, I other. Mean, obviously, Chris, being the editor-in-chief, was involved in making this cover. Right. And then we shared the same agent, literary agent. Okay. And, uh, I mean, I came to this knowing nothing. I, I had a manuscript completed in Japan, and uh, the publishing company that was going to publish it folded. Okay. And so I had the out... I had the making... I mean, I wrote the first manuscript, but then Chris... This you is know, for your uh, first book. Yeah, for the first for, book. Yeah, so you had um, that manuscript. So our, our okay. agent introduced us. 
Got it. And, um, you know, she said, I think Chris would be a really good fit for you. He's really great. And I said, okay, great. First, and she suggested somebody else. I just need to make sure that that's on the record. <laughs> that's right. What's your name again? <laughs> I only found that out two days ago. And it's, I don't know. It's really dri- driven a wedge through our, the heart of our friendship here. I was just back in the States after being away for 10 years. I know from nothing. Mm. <laughs> anyway, it still hurts. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'd appreciate you know. an on-air apology. I suppose at some point you could probably get over that. I suggest chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we met through, yeah, our, our, I haven't had the makings of the, the what, what turned out to be the first book and our agents were like, uh-huh. he didn't know what to do because the, the publisher had collapsed and, um, you know, the, the, the excerpt in that first issue is from the book that wasn't going to be published. And right. I, I loved, I loved what I had read of it. And, and the funny thing is like the thing that's in there is maybe the top 5% of Ivan's story. Like there's nothing about how it all happened. It was just like, we, we start kind of like in medias rest, like, and there's a white guy and he's making ramen in Tokyo and this right. is how it goes. But you know, I, the more we started talking, the first time we met face to face was in Japan. Cause we agreed to do this book with each other without having ever seen each other. Okay. Uh, and we showed up in Japan to spend a week, maybe yeah, a little more just week. tooling around and getting to know each other and, and, and me interviewing him and doing very extensive interviews uh to to kind of fill in more of the book so that's how that's how we met and we had a good enough time that yeah. we uh we just yeah yeah we had fun it was good that you, know. you decided to do a second one right which is why we're here today which yeah yes. yeah despite this new newly discovered animosity you you did another <laughs> book together the gaijin cookbook um so let's let's talk about this book for a minute then the the gaijin cookbook so first maybe for listeners who might not be familiar let's talk about the word gaijin so mm-hmm. i think it Probably most literally sort of translates to outsider. Is that right? And outsider, how do, uh-huh. really just not Japanese. Right. I mean, uh, but outsider, yes. Yeah. And you write in the beginning, Ivan, that you used to cringe when you heard it. Um, you say, I used to cringe when I heard it. It took years to overcome the shame of it. Can you talk about sort of your association with the, the term gaijin? Well, I mean, I came to Japan originally in 1987. Uh I mean, Japan's come a very long way. It's changed a lot. You know, uh, the tourism there is spectacular now. It's been great for the country. And I think, you know, along with just changing times, I think, you know, Japan has globalized a lot and they're much more receptive to having people from other countries visiting. Okay. Uh, When I first went, you know, I think that people were still, you know, there were, you meet people, they'd say, oh, wow. I've never met an American before, sure. you know, and, and, and they'd be, you know, so surprised. And, uh, I mean, Japanese people have a very specific way of doing things. And a lot of times foreigners come to live and they're really not amenable to doing it the way everybody else does, which makes Japanese people wary because their system is rigid, but it works really, really well. It's why when people visit Japan, they're like, I love this place. It's great. Right. It's clean. It's, uh-huh. it's bright. There's all these great things happening. And, and part of the reason people like it so much is because there's this rigidity that, that just makes the flow go, yeah. go in the right direction. It exactly. almost never goes in the wrong direction. And, and so, um, I, I think that there's always been a difficulty. So I think early on, this use of the word gaijin was because, you know, a lot of people, would come and not understand the way things were and they would push back or they would say, well, why do I, I'm not, I'm not a marrow Japanese. Why do I have to do that? And, yeah. and, and so there's a certain amount of animosity and just the way a homogenous society works. Sure. You know, I think that, I mean, this book is very much about home cooking and helping people right. put food on the table. And it's about, you know, like us trying to convey the, the things that, uh, the ways that we eat at home and the way the things I've learned from Ivan to, to other people. But if there's like a, 
overarching thesis of the book it's it's kind of captured just right there in that first sentence that you read you know like um sort of doing away with any kind of shame or or whatever about being an outsider is really what this book is is about too it's a, it's about um seeing yourself as always an outsider and and being mm-hmm. curious and open and yeah like not being ashamed to be a gaijin i right. think is, is really what it is yeah, I mean, you really decided to embrace it by making it the title, right? I think well, I read, just, Chris, it was your idea to make it the title. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think that um, I, Ivan and I wanted to do this book. And, and I think that given the, the time and place that we're at right now, um, <laughs> it's not it's not really an ideal time uh, for a, a, a Jewish guy from Long Island and a Chinese guy to write a book about Japanese cooking. If if you're looking not to stir the pot too much like that, that can tickle some people in the wrong ways but i i think that that's silly and but that I, was I the whole point like, of the book the whole uh-huh. point of the book and the and why calling it gaijin is so poignant is because i love japan with every ounce of my being and i've dedicated my whole life i opened a ramen business not because i love ramen but because i love japan okay and yeah. so this ability to be sort of on the outside just observing and and feeling this this just incredible warmth about what i'm observing and then you know chris has been that way about many many things and many cultures and many types of cuisines and then in our in the course of our relationship he's been drawn into into you know getting my viewpoint on Japan. Right. And so, and then as we wrote the book together, we started to really coalesce around this idea of, of Japan and Japanese cuisine. And I think that so many people who travel, you know, not only to Japan, but anywhere get sold this kind of false bill of goods by, you know, travel companies and and media that like, you can be a local, you can live like an insider. Here's the insider's guide to Tokyo. And, and I just think it's such nonsense yeah you know like and it's you're just who are you fooling to think like oh like they're not gonna they don't notice that i'm here like i'm blending in you know and like why do you want that either you know i think like of course we all want to we don't none of us want to feel like we're being hoodwinked and, and and taken for tourists or whatever but it's 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 almost like you're you're fooling yourself, right? Like, why not own that you're an outsider and that and that you could observe these things as an outsider, as Ivan has for his whole career? Um, you know, he he succeeded as a, a ramen chef in Japan because he was an outsider, both because like that was something of a novelty, but also because he could look at things that were done a certain way with with kind of fresh eyes and say, well, I don't know anything about anything. But I, I sure know what I like. So I'm going to try and just figure it out myself. And, right. and like, that's, that's again, you know, the, the book, we're so happy about the recipes and, and, and everything that's in there. But we're also really happy about this, uh, about putting forward this notion of, of being a gaijin and not being ashamed or, or, or anything like and that. And also, li- you know, living it, you know, it's, yeah. it's the fact is you don't, you don't have to live in Tokyo for 30 years to be able to cook from this book or to understand what we're cooking. Sure. It's, it's, I mean, for me, this book is just sort of a, a journal or just, you know, you know, a writing of my family recipes, you know, for the last right. 30 years and especially, specifically the last 17. And I've been with my wife and she and I, a lot of these recipes are, 
recipes that she loves or things that she asked for where we were, you know, could you make this or that? And I would say, well, I don't, I don't know. Tell me how it's made and I'll make it. And sort of just over the yeah. years. And then, and so writing the book was hard only in the sense that I had to make myself go back and rethink everything for, so that it would be easy for people. Cause I'm a little bit of a Jewish Japanese grandma, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, right. and so we were, I was very disciplined about, about, about writing the recipes out and, mm-hmm. you know, because I really wanted this to be, you know, to me, I feel like most Americans know Japanese flavors, even they might not be sure, but then, but, you, but if you've ever had even just some kind of a teriyaki salmon or chicken or something, right. you know, at its most banal form, they've had it. Right. And so, but they've never imagined they could actually have it in their own home. And, and, you know, Chris and I have, I think we've really put together a book that makes that doable. And, and with the magic of uh, the internet, you can get all the ingredients and, and, and there's not that many you need to be able to pull off uh, these recipes. We'll be right back with Ivan Orkin and Chris Yang, authors of the Gaijin Cookbook, Japanese Recipes from a Chef, Father, Eater, and Lifelong Outsider. But right now we're joined by food writer Charlotte Druckmann, who recently penned a piece for the Washington Post titled, Can Cooking Serve as a Balm for Depression? For one British author, it saved her life. Charlotte joins us to talk about her piece and about how mental health factors into the cookbook writing process for some authors. Her piece begins with British author Ella Risbridger's debut cookbook, Midnight Chicken and Other Recipes Worth Living For, published earlier this year. When I write about cookbooks, I like to put them in a larger context. I think that, you know, our relationship with cookbooks is really subjective. I also think they're part of a history, and I think that they're cultural emblems of where we are or where we were and how we cook. And what I loved about this book was that it touched on something that I think happens a lot that we don't really talk about, which is just, I think a lot of us use cooking as a kind of an outlet, even when we have to cook. I think that there's a mini escape um, in going into the kitchen, especially if you're someone who sits at a desk all day long um, or you're in your head a lot. I think if you're, even if you're not depressed like the author is in terms of the clinical definition of depression, even if you're just feeling anxious, if you're feeling Sad, um, you know, just to get up and go into your kitchen and do something physical like cooking and see that sort of instant gratification of it, I think, can really change your mood and really get your mind, kind of reset your mind. I loved that this cookbook addressed that in such a real way and that it was a personal story of someone who had gone some through something really so difficult. She tried to kill herself. Um, and she really says that food saved her, that, I mean, that's what she remembers from being in the hospital. She remembers thinking about making a pie. And so when she came home, that was the first thing she did um, with the help of her partner. They made a pie together. And it's so it's such a beautiful thing to read, the way she writes about it. Charlotte noticed it wasn't just Ella Risbridger's cookbook that bore honest and truthful depictions of mental health struggles or simply even narratives around the role cooking plays as an outlet for many. Charlotte refers us to authors like Nigella Lawson and Diana Henry, two previous Salt and Spine guests who have turned to cooking in difficult times. I do think that there's this small part of cooking that's just the actual cooking itself could make you feel better. Not not the food part, but just the cooking part. And when I saw Ella's book, it was just like, yes, that, that's it. That is the thing. And it was also, you know, how many cookbooks can you think of? And really a cookbook, not a memoir. This is really a cookbook. Can you think of where 
it starts, the opening page is the cookbook author telling you about their suicide. I mean, that is not what we expect from cookbooks. I wanted to get at how special the book was specifically, but also how it touched on something I think that's so much bigger and that I think is maybe even more helpful than just giving people a few really good recipes for pasta. Charlotte notes that Nigella found herself keeping her mother's spirit alive by working on her first cookbook, How to Eat, after her mother died when Nigella was just 25. And later, Diana Henry turned to Nigella's How to Eat as she faced postnatal depression. In a recent essay on the matter, Diana Henry wrote, Many women, mostly women, have used How to Eat not just as a cookbook, but as a balm during periods of depression, divorce, or illness. It's almost, it almost is like when you're dealing with a kind of an abstract, not necessarily pain, but kind of an abstract pain because people talked about in terms of grief, you know, um, and feeling closer to people who had died or just processing grief um, and things like postpartum depression, things that, you know, you can't quite put your finger on where you just don't feel right in the world. And I think that cooking becomes that activity that maybe sets you right, even just for a little bit. Charlotte is careful to note that cooking and food aren't one-size-fits-all approaches and may not be the right outlet for some people. But for many, spending time preparing a meal for yourself or others can be incredibly cathartic. Everyone's not the same. So for some people, cooking might not be the answer. Charlotte and I talked about the long-standing stigma around mental health and the work that Kat Kinsman in particular, food and wine senior editor and host of their podcast Communal Table, has done with Chefs with Issues, which she founded to bring attention to struggles people face in the food industry, from depression to anxiety to addiction. What I think has happened in the last few years is just, yeah, the general conversation about mental health. And I think in some ways that can be dangerous because it can become almost like a trend, which isn't what you want to see. But I think on another level, yes, it's extraordinary that people are feeling more comfortable about talking about it. And I also think it's interesting. I was thinking about this as I was thinking, oh, should I ask a chef? Should I have a chef speak to this? And I realized that it was so complicated because the thing for chefs is that as much as the act of cooking might actually be the same balm for them, the space that they've worked in for so long is so toxic. So it's hard to separate the act of the cooking from their surroundings. Um, And I think for home cooks or people at home, it's so different because you just go into your own kitchen and that's your own space and it's a safe space, which is a really wonderful thing. So yes, I did think about that a lot. I thought about all the progress that has been made in talking about mental health and and about cat's work. And then I thought, okay, where, where can we take that? Where can we go with it in another direction for people in food or people tangential to food or people who just love food and are maybe going through their own hard time? That's food writer Charlotte Druckmann. Thanks so much for joining us. If you're struggling and want to talk, you can call 1-800-273-TALK or text 741-741 24 hours a day. Charlotte's piece, titled Can Cooking Serve as a Balm for Depression for One British Author, It Saved Her Life, is available on WashingtonPost.com. Charlotte's latest book, Women on Food, was just released and brings together 115 of the most important female voices in food, from Nigella Lawson and Diana Henry to Carla Hall, Samin Nosrat, Rachel Ray, Priya Krishna, Preeti Mistry, and many more. 
Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Allison Roman to today's guests, Ivan Orkin and Chris Yang, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today. To support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month, find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash salt a-n-d spine. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the current issue, hear from three women, Lenora Estrada of Three Babes Bake Shop, Janelle St. Jean of Pietisserie, and Elizabeth Simon of Revenge Pies, on how they're speaking out on behalf of women and minority-owned businesses, building up their operations, and paying it forward to their communities. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at ediblesanfrancisco.com. And now back to our conversation with Ivan Orkin and Chris Ying, authors of the Gaijin Cookbook, Japanese Recipes from a Chef, Father, Eater, and Lifelong Outsider. Chris, you also edited, is it right to say edited, um, the book You and I Eat the Same? Compiled, edited, um, put together this book, which is sort of focused on the culinary common grounds between cultures, right? And there's a, a number of essays in the book. So that sort of concept, right? Like, Ivan, you've been cooking and making ramen for 30 years now you're always going to be a guy but but anyway cooking for 30 years (laughs) yeah something like that but you're always going to be a gaijin right you're you're never going to wake up and be japanese so there's nor do i want to right and and you (laughs) and you actually write in the book so i mean we've established that as a fact clearly but you you write in the book that perhaps in 20 years we'll look back and laugh about how bad we are at sharing our culinary traditions respectfully and responsibly which i think is a conversation that's happening in a lot of places around the country, around the world today. Like, how do you, how has that sort of influenced your work? Obviously, we're here about the Gaijin cookbook, but in all of your cookbooks, both of you and your broader work, how have you sort of cemented that idea? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I, I really, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the last book that I did with, um, Mad, which is, you know, the foundation right. started by Renee Redzepi out of Copenhagen. Because, you know, I, I, I wrote these two books or I put these two books together. Essentially at the same time, um, which I don't recommend, uh, logistically <laughs> speaking, but, uh, they are cut from the exact same cloth. You know, the, the themes that are in you and I eat the same. I, I decided to put that book together because we were right in the thick of these really violent debates about immigration. You mm-hmm. know, it was, Trump and the wall and kids locked in cages and right. just the most horrific stuff you can think about. And, and, and the dialogues we were having about immigration were being had on these levels that just seemed crazy. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't talking about anything. We weren't talking from a place of common ground. We weren't talking uh, about the, the actual issues. We were talking about mythical streams of immigrants that were going to come pouring over the, the border and, and safety and, and things like this. And, and, right. and it was, for me, it was really like, can we establish one piece of common ground, which is that, uh, we all want to eat well. 
wherever we are. And many of the ways that we choose to eat well are very similar to one another, whether it's uh-huh. wrapping meat in flatbread or steaming things in leaves or, or whatever, what, what, what have you. And if we can agree that food is better because we, because of the interaction of cultures and because food and ingredients and ideas and, and, and people travel around the world, if we can establish that, yes, food is undeniably better for that reason, then at least we have like some piece of common ground from which we can argue about the other facets. We can say, yes, that is true, but I do feel as though, uh, you know, our national safety is, is threatened or something. But nobody was having this art, this conversation from the perspective of like, let's agree to one thing first, you know? And, and so the, the Gaijin cookbook is, is really a continuation of that. And, mm-hmm. and what we talk about in, in the first chapter is that our cookbook exists to dispel a lot of notions of, of what Japanese cooking is, that it's yeah. this very, very, precise and delicate art form. You know, you have to dress a certain way to cook it and, and, and whatever. But the reality is Ivan and his family lived in Japan for many, many years. And the, the takeaway for me talking to him and spending a lot of time with him in Japan is that a Japanese ex- existence is really comprises the same things as an American one. You know, there there's, it's hard to put dinner on the table. And that's something that unites us as far apart as we seem. And, and so that's what this book is, is we've all got the same problem of cooking right. food for our family. Here are some things that Ivan has learned, some secrets uh, that will help you that maybe you didn't right. think of because, you know, you haven't looked to Japan for that kind of advice. Yeah. Yeah. Chris touches on this concept. Of, I think that a lot of maybe American home cooks have that Japanese cooking is inaccessible, right. right? That there's like a level of precision or expertise or commitment that makes it inaccessible for an everyday home cook, which is sort of what you're working to in some ways dispel well, you in know, this the, book. The books that were out there seem to range, you know, from the, the very fancy, you know, reverential type of thing and, right. with, you know, pictures of very old people hunched over <laughs> cutting boards or something. And, sure. and then, you know, and then very, very simple cookbooks that were not necessarily sophisticated or didn't have that much story. You know, right. to me, I mean, one thing that, that really Chris and I have in common is we both love books. Yeah. I mean, I love books ever since I was a very little kid. I grew up in a family of readers. Um, I, I just, I still, to me, when I crack open a new book, the smell of the book is that, I mean, it, it rivals the smell of the best food. Yeah. And, you know, I just really, really have a great warm feeling about books. And I, so I think we didn't, we, 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 we crafted a book together and, and it was really important to have a book that has a, a very important theme that people can understand. And, and, you know, the best books, you know, communicate from the authors exactly what their plan was. And then when people read it, they say, this is how I felt when I read the book. And you, and you say, but you were talking about how the range of Japanese cookbooks are usually overly reverential or overly simple. Right. And, and is- so this one is in the middle. This was yeah. more like we, the, uh, sorry. Yes. The, so the, 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 he always brings me back to reality, <laughs> but, um, the, uh, this, this idea, you know, is that we, you know, I, I cook these recipes that were, that are my family recipes. Uh-huh. But we, I, we took, you know, all the attitude and all the little sort of little bit of this and a little bit of that stuff. And instead it's, you know, we made it so that maybe you, you have to, you can microwave the vegetables so they cook faster. And, right. you know, some things can be cooked ahead of time a week or two in advance and frozen and, and things and said, Hey, you know what? Chris and I are both dads. He's a young dad. I'm not as, I'm not as young, but I'm still a dad and I still come home and my wife is sitting at 545 at the table and I, she, she goes, so what are you making for dinner? I'm like, right. I don't know. I've been out like 
for nine hours. <laughs> yeah. But sure, I'll make dinner. <laughs> you know, so running around, you know, getting food on the table. And we're both super sympathetic to that, how difficult that is. And yet we know because we've done it. And yes, we're both yeah. professionally capable. And yet it doesn't change the fact that sometimes we have 30 minutes to get food on the table and right. we want it to taste good. And so that's what the spirit of the book is with some fun anecdotes thrown in there and some, you know, stories that tie it together so that people don't feel like they're just getting a newsletter with a bunch of recipes in it. Sure. Because I, you know, cause that, that, <laughs> right. I mean, but, it, yeah. but, but, there, but there's so many cookbooks now and there are cookbooks that feel like a newsletter and that don't have that. And so it was important to us to really have someone feel like they're, they're getting a full experience when they read a book that we've written together. The, the last one was much more niche. Mm-hmm. We're really proud right. of it. And I think it, it achieved what we wanted. They told about the adventure, the crazy adventure I had of opening a business in, in Japan and, and then giving this recipe for ramen that I wished someone had given to me when I wanted to open a ramen shop. And so that was, that was our goal. Yeah. And I think we, we, I think we achieved it. And so for this one, what we really want to have is I want to see that book, you know, in 20 years on someone's, someone say to me, my God, I just use this book all the time. It's dog-eared and ragged and, and I, and I'm just so proud of it and love it. And it's great. And I use it all the time. And yeah. my family has lived on your food. And so that's, you know, that's my dream. Of, 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 for this book and for any book we write that, that it becomes part of, you know, I used to say, I mean, my dream is that when someone, before they go to bed at night, my book is on their nightstand. Yeah. And they're reading it and, and loving it and, and, and feel like it's a part of, of their day. Yeah. It's been on my nightstand the past couple nights. Um, I wish we had time to like dissect all of it, but I want to pull out one more piece from the book specifically. You touched on this a little bit just now, I think, but the first title or the, sorry, the first chapter is actually titled Eat More Japanese. You're, you're careful to note that, of course, there's no singular way of eating in Japan and Japanese people do not all, all think alike. Um, despite how you might perceive that if you eat in, um, uh, some Japanese restaurants in the United States. What do you mean when you say eat more Japanese? Can you give us a couple tips for home cooks? Yeah, I mean, I think it's Chris and I were talking about how a lot of this book also encompasses how I feel about Japan and how, you know, Japanese people uh, uh, behave. And, and I mean, Japanese food is obviously in many ways a little, little bit lighter and, and cleaner, uh, a way to eat. You know, we, we talk a lot about you know, uh, eating variety, variety and healthier uh-huh. and hiding our vegetables amongst fried noodles. So our kids <laughs> will not know that they're having a healthy plate of food. Right. And, and, and trying to really, uh, um, get that sort of going in people's homes. So hiding vegetables for children is a, a trick with the world <laughs> yeah, over, yeah, right? Yeah. Like my mom used to just cover broccoli and the Velveeta cheese. So we'd eat our broccoli. Ours is more like <laughs> nesting it in fried noodles, which yeah. like, I just feel like you put anything in fried noodles and kids well, will eat it. But um, sure. no, I think, you know, the eating more Japanese thing we say like kind of with tongue in cheek, you know, like you said, it's, it's, there's not one way to do it, but you know, I just really had to, grill Ivan over and over and over again about things. And it's, it's hard to distill these things. And, and more to the point, like you shouldn't really ever try to distill a culture into one thing or another. But, yeah. you know, we, we came away with some, some recurring themes that were in our book, which were, you know, trying to provide this kind of variety and not just in, in sort of like how many things, but, you know, Ivan always talks about when, when he cooks dinner for his wife, if there's only uh, three things there and they're all brown, she gets bummed out. Like, where's the red stuff? Where's the orange stuff? The green stuff? Where's the pickle? The soup? You know, and, and we can't all make 
eight things every night, but it's something to aspire to. And, right. and it pushes you to, to try like a, a, to embrace a greater variety. And, you know, there's obviously, you know, umami is, is a huge part of, of Japanese cuisine. In fact, they, they coined the phrase, a Japanese scientist coined the phrase, right. um, and, and identified this, this, you know, quote unquote fifth flavor. You know, but, but using it with a, with a deft hand, you know, being able to understand umami as like identify some of those unexpected ones. Again, to dispel the notion that like eating more Japanese means eating more raw fish or right. eating more ramen. Sure. Although you should, because, uh, it would really help Ivan. I mean, last question about the book before we have to run, before we have to move on talking about ramen. There's a recipe for an instant ramen party. Yes. So is we instant ramen noodles are like redeemable in some way? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, I'm, I don't eat instant food. Uh-huh. I haven't since I was in high school. Sure. Um, I'm weird, but my kids love it. And I, you know, I, we keep, we buy boxes of it when we're in Japan and bring it home. And, um, we, we buy it, you know, at the grocery when we find it. Yeah. And the kids really love it. And we thought it would be fun to let people know that, you know, it's okay for your kids to eat instant ramen. There's worse things. And that you could also kind of gussy it up and make it, yeah. make it really fun. And there's just endless options of toppings. I mean, you could, you know, I know I do this. I mean, listen, I own a ramen shop. Right. So I come home with ramen <laughs> from the restaurant and the kids are just like, they're so ec- ecstatic. And then I don't have to cook. Yeah. So <laughs> it's pretty exciting. But for those of you who don't own a ramen shop, you, you know, you start with instant ramen and then you're like, Oh, I have that barbecue chicken we made on Sunday night mm-hmm. and I'll chop that up and that can go warm it up. It goes on top and you know, you can fry an egg. Right. And put that on top and you could take some broccoli and saute it in a little bit of sesame oil and garlic and put that on top. And now all of a sudden you have this like, you know, semi healthful kind of fun thing to eat. And the kids are like, well, I'm eating ramen and I have the broccoli actually tastes like garlic. It's kind of good. And I loved last night's chicken. So, and now they're, and then, then who doesn't like a fried egg? And everybody's eating this food. So it's like, I think it's really fun. And I think people really respond to that kind of a thing where, where you, it's interactive and you get to make choices about what you're going to do. You know, we also talk about the Tamaki sushi party. It's the same right. idea of, which is know, the hand rolls, which sushi. is the hand rolls. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we, we talked about how Chris's in-laws loved having sushi, but they always would get stressed out about making their own nigiri and making their own, their own rolls. Right. And one person had to sort of stay in the kitchen while everybody else had a good time and then I said to Chris well no you just you do a tamaki party and then everybody just makes their own everybody gets a little stack of nori and uh-huh. there's a you know a bunch of bowls of rice out there and toppings and then nobody is stuck in the kitchen everybody's responsible right. for their own thing and you don't have to judge people yeah. when they're and like and it can be raw right. it can be cooked it can yeah. be mixed if people said I, I just hate raw fish you say great no problem cook a piece of salmon well, I don't say that have a say co- like, what just, you, you don't have to you don't have to say like no problem you can be like well I I disagree with you, but you you, you, you can that? still you can still eat with us. But uh, you have to eat this, right? Yeah, uh, ground beef over here. <laughs> but it's really fun. This whole idea of interactive dining and, yeah. and making making eating really fun and 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 easy. Yeah, because that's also you know the, you know I really think most of the recipes in the book, except we have the otaku section, the geeky uh-huh. section, so right. it's, it's a little it takes a little more commitment, but really not that much more. And it's just that even me and listen, I'm a, I'm a pretty good cook, and I'm and I understand recipes, but I get some of these books and I open them up and I read through them, and I'm like, I'm not making that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. and I yeah. I just you know I can't even get my head around what it's going to take to make that thing, and I close it and I don't do it. Yeah, and we didn't really want that book, and and Chris has made a lot of 
those books and he's made, he's put out a lot of his recipes and intellectually, I think they're very valuable, but for normal people and including Chris and I, you know, having a book that, that could become your Bible for feeding your family, I think is very valuable. Yeah, I mean, to that point, we're a show on cookbooks, so we always like to ask people what influences you've had in your, the course of your career. You've both worked on a number of cookbooks. Are there authors or specific works that have been really meaningful to you or really great resources for you as you've worked on your own books? Well, or I, told, as you've learned to cook? I told Chris that me, for my, my favorite book of all time is the Zuni Cafe cookbook. Uh-huh. I, I really... Book. I learned a lot from that, just her voice yeah. uh, and how she's I, – I, I, I try to do the same thing when I write a recipe to let people know that it's just a guide and that right. they shouldn't feel too uptight about, about you know, substituting ingredients or riffing on things. But when I came up with Ivan Ramen, and I mean, I, I had hundreds of cookbooks that I schlepped from New York to Tokyo. Okay. And I would sit and just read so many of them, and it really helped me to sort of get my head around how to come up with my own food. For me, I came into the world of, of food writing very sideways. You know, I was working at McSweeney's, and, and you know, like my mentors there were Dave Eggers and, mm-hmm. and Eli Horowitz and Andrew Leland, who are who were just like kind of geniuses of, of experimental right. fiction and oral history and, and, um, really taught me to approach books in a, in a specific way and, and that being ass backwards and upside down. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the stuff I did in the beginning that, that was successful and resonated with a new audience was because, you know, I, I didn't know how to make a, a, a recipe properly. I didn't know how you're supposed to, how you're supposed to, I, I used cookbooks and read a lot of cookbooks and, and food magazines, but I didn't know how you're supposed to write a recipe to be useful. And so, you know, my early influences were all these other people from outside of the food world. And, and, uh, as, as I've gotten a little bit older and, 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 and maybe, graduated from that a little bit and started to see, you know, how that can become a little bit stagnant too. I've, I've really taken a lot from useful books, you know, and I think about, I think about the the books that you, you really do pull off the shelf over and over again. And and those I I really have come to admire, you know, the Zuni cafe cookbook, Uh of course, but you know, the things that like Kenji Lopez is doing and, and books that people are truly cooking from. And, and, uh, that has become, my new model and, and not to, I, I still want to do interesting stuff. And I think right. that like this book is structured in a really interesting way and, and tells a compelling story. But I, I also want to learn how to do the other thing. I want to learn how to do that thing that I maybe like thumb my nose at before. Sure. Well, we always end with a little game. So let's play. Look at this. Um, we've got our secret ingredient cards he- out here, which are the blue cards, our protein cards, our flavor cards, and our vegetable cards. We were just talking about instant ramen noodles. And um, Ivan, you also write that ramen, compared to a lot of other Japanese dishes like soba or udon, it has much more is much more forgiving. There's much more flexibility with how you can prepare a ramen. There are no rules. There's no, there no rules. recipes. Perfect. No rules and recipes is exactly the theme we're going for, because I'm going to have you draw um, a number of cards here, maybe one from each deck. And you guys can work to. Do you want to work together on this, or do you want to? No, I want to compete. No, we don't. Compete. We, compete. we don't work together. Let's we compete. compete. Yeah. All right. So we're going to do a couple rounds. You'll go one at a time, then, and you can draw one of each of these cards. So you'll have four cards in front of you, and I want to see if we can put that Age to before the, beauty, to my the test. So I have no idea what that means. But. <laughs> you go first, old man. <laughs> the game is: Can you ramen it? And Ivan Orkin is up first. What do you have in your in your uh, pantry here? Oh, Jesus, I have passion Dude. fruit, beans, mint, 
and cucumber. All right. Passion fruit, beans, mint, and cucumber. And we've got a ramen it. So how do we do it? Uh, I would do it. I would do a, a cold ramen. Uh-huh. I would probably do, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a natto ramen. Okay. And can you, know? you explain natto? Natto is fermented soybeans. Uh-huh. So I'm going to make a, uh, I'm going to use the passion fruit and the mint and the <laughs> cucumber together. Why? To make, what do you mean why? <laughs> Sounds awful. Wait till you hear my ingredients. My ingredients is just the ingredients for ramen. Go really? ahead. Really? Yeah. Well, you suck. <laughs> I don't I want to hear about your nacho. I got passion beans, wanna, passion fruit, beans, mint. I want to hear about your, I want to hear about your, hell am I supposed to do that? Passion I mean, this is like, yeah. this is exactly why I don't go on chopped. <laughs> <laughs> this was the, and this was the last recipe they ever served at Ivan Ramen. That's it was, yeah. a, this is when he closed. Passion fruit nacho ramen. Right. So it's He's, a natto ramen, and what what are you doing with the passion no, fruit? He just already just destroyed yeah. me. I'm just you know. I, he's, he's, go ahead, go ahead. No, you're going to use the mint, yeah. I, I the passion know. fruit, and the and, and the cucumber for some type of uh, relish a that would go on top, on top. A little salad on top of the whipped up uh, the whipped up natto on top of uh, on top of some icy cold noodles and uh, a bracing uh, a bracing uh, dashi and uh, and. Uh, Sweet uh, 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 plum vinegar uh, oh, broth. Okay, all right. Yes, I can kind of envision it. Uh, My Chris, ingredients are carrots, have? cilantro, tofu, and dopio <laughs> concentrated tomato paste. Well, there you which go. I feel like I could just make. You make a little carrot and tomato dashi. Okay, cold noodles. S- throw some cilantro in there and some tofu. I you could see that on a menu already, man. Dude, I just crushed you. With your natto, <laughs> I dare you to make a natto passion fruit okay, ramen. we're stopping at Whole Foods on the way home. <laughs> Fuck you, man. Challenge accepted. <laughs> uh, you want to do one more round? You want to redeem, try and redeem yeah, yourself try to redeem against these, yourself, these baseless attacks here? Take some extra cards if you need them. Oh, round oh two, God. Ivan, what do you have? God, give me a fucking break. <laughs> <laughs> Am I still making ramen, or am I making something else now? It's still ramen. Can it's you ramen, ramen is the game. God, my um, shit is so tight over here. What do you have in, in your hand, I, Ivan? I got coffee beans. Coffee. Chicken. Chicken. Bell pepper and mustard. <laughs> bell pepper and mustard. All right. This the is question not, is, can you ramen it? This is not my forte. You know what I'm going to say? Yeah. I'm going to say no. You're going to say no. I'm going to say no, I can't. I'm going to say, Chris, go ahead and be a winner. But uh, while you're doing this, I'm going to be using my coffee beans to make myself a very strong cup of coffee. (laughs) Check me out. But I respect that. You're you're saying no. You're not going to stoop to that level. I just, you know what, man? I watch these shows where they they, they take the fucking jelly beans and the peanut brittle (laughs) and the... Right. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I don't know what and they make. They, they make some like they make the gas. This game is the- so hilariously rigged. Yeah, Chris Sorry. looks giddy. What do you Check have, Chris? Okay. Onions, <laughs> ginger, no. sea urchin, and chickpea. Yeah. I'm done, uh, man. Yeah. I'm gonna make a classic Ivan ramen style sofrito right. with some ginger and onion. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal a play a play out of the Dave Chan cookbook, and I'm gonna spend a few months making a chickpea miso. Right, okay. and then we'll just we'll just make a ramen out of that and throw some beautiful sea urchin on top, right. and and laugh at your peanut brittle ramen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> next door. Uh, that Thank did you. feel rigged. I swear I shuffled though. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, Ivan. Okay. I'm sorry. You know what? We put I'm, you to the test. You know, one of one of my secrets to my sex success <laughs> to your is sex. to know is to know when <laughs> Tell to us about your sex to know when to bow out and just say, <laughs> you, you know go. what, I'm out. There you go. <laughs> yeah. You know, go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Applies to sex as well. Yeah. All right. Well, this was so fun. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. 
And let's head now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hi, Brian. Doing well. Great. So we just sat down with Ivan Orkin and Chris Ying to talk about their latest book together, The Guy Jean Cookbook. And I'm hoping you have something to share with us. Yeah, they were so great. I met them um, at my store and also when we did a dinner for them over at Mr. Jew's. Sure. And, uh, you know, what's really nice about this book, so they also wrote Ivan Raman together. Right. And um, Ivan Orkin is a white New Yorker, mm-hmm. and Gaijin means white guy. Right. Uh, so he, uh, or at least non-Japanese guy. Sure, foreigner, <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. But he lived for many, many years in Japan and absolutely mm-hmm. fell in love with it. Uh, he started this restaurant, Ivan Raman, uh, that was very popular there. And then the earthquake happened, mm-hmm. and his wife, who's Japanese, really wanted to move out of Japan. She yeah. felt really unsafe, so they decided to return to New York, where they live up in uh, Westchester County. But uh-huh. he opened a restaurant or two there and ended up you know, becoming equally popular right. um, stateside. What's nice about this book, as opposed to Ivan Ramen, which is also wonderful, uh, is it's much more home cooking. Sure. It's a lot of Japanese, very filling, delicious meals of, you know, sort of pork stews and, right. and mushrooms and, you know, very soul warming dishes that you can actually make at home. Yeah. You know, ramen is, is something you can make at home, but it's going to be a multi-day event. Yes. Yeah. To do it right. Uh, Yeah. To do, to do it right. And to do, you know, just one, one dish. Whereas this is many, many different things. And Chris Ying is such a great writer. He really caught his voice, Ivan's voice, and was able to translate that onto the page. And I love the way that they embraced the Gaijin concept Mm -hmm. and and made it the title of the book. And we've talked with different authors and with you at various times about this concept of authenticity, right? Right. And so, you know, as you noted, you have this white New Yorker who's opening these incredible ramen restaurants in New York City. And I think I love that in the second book, they really just sort of embraced that idea that anybody can cook this Japanese home cooking dishes at home. Yeah. That I mean, it's really accessible. And he, to even open those uh, ramen restaurants in Japan, I right. mean, that's ballsy. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and to really make a success out of it and, and enjoy doing them so much. And he clearly loves the culture and loves the food and just embraces it with such panache. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Celia. Sure, you're welcome. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from the Gaijin cookbook, the chicken dan dan noodles and the okonomiyaki or savory pancakes. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Additional music today is from To Japan by Pierce Murphy on Free Music Archive. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to food writer Charlotte Druckmann, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. Or you can listen to our first level one all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.